Return to Dallas by Robert P. Fitton. Return to Dallas, Chapter 29. Lake Pontchartrain, Bedico Creek, Louisiana, Thursday, September 5th, 1963. Near Bedico Creek, from atop a hill and within a mass of hanging vines and Spanish moss, Patch steadied the bell and howl camera on a log. Sherry gripped the metal canteen and with a bandana wiped the sweat off his brow. In the grassy field, soldiers in combat fatigues poured out of bulky military trucks. Patch filmed many of them carrying machine guns. Another group had mortars and bazookas. A thick foliage swamp lay beyond the field. Small arms fire popped across the field as the soldiers dived into the grass. Sherry whispered in his ear when the machine gun muzzles ignited orange. That's live shooting, Patch. Patch kept filming and did not respond even when the mortars exploded a mere hundred feet away. Then he stopped the film and turned back to the log. He wound the camera again. These people are well trained. Sounds like we're in the middle of a war, she said, blocking her ears at the next explosion. A group of men ran past them, 50 yards away in the field. Patch lifted the camera and panned toward the Louisiana road sign. Five men lingered near a jeep as other troops darted in the area beyond. Guy Bannister turned in front of the jeep. That's Bannister. To the left, Lee Oswald lingered next to a group of soldiers. In his fatigues, he appeared to look at the camera. Oswald, that same stupid smirk. Sherry spoke in a low voice in Patch's ear. This is making sense now. Obviously, Oswald works for the government. Maybe, said Patch as he stopped filming. Against the government? Don't know. Patch lifted the canteen. The water had a metal taste. He leaned against the tree until Sherry advised him Phillips had moved into the open. Unlike the others, Phillips wore street clothes and held a 45 caliber handgun. Patch cranked the bell and howl and then pushed the shutter button. More soldiers fired their weapons. He recognized the tall man in fatigues but could not access his name. This time they shot up targets in the shape of a man nailed to various trees, and the echoes reverberated across the swamp. Another man in fatigues ripped off one of the targets off the tree so they could see the bullet holes. David Ferry, said Patch as he kept filming. Either he cut his hair with hedge clippers or he's wearing a wig, and a bad one at that. Then Oswald aimed his rifle at the target. Patch counted seven shots into the cutout. One of the soldiers marched toward the swamp, but Patch focused on the man with the glasses speaking with two men next to a telephone pole. Unlike most of the men, he wore white chinos and a white shirt. Look how he's dressed. Intelligence officer of some kind, she said. Patch pulled out the amplifier rod and slipped the headphones over his head. He listened carefully for at least a half a minute as they talked about munitions and Castro. The second man called him by name, Tracy Barnes. They're talking about the valley getting low-frequency Motorola transceivers to David Ferry and Clay Shaw. Walkie-talkies with a quarter mile of range. More stuff about Castro and guns. There's a war going on down here nobody knows about it. For sure. He mentioned Jack Ruby and McWillie and how they used to get guns to fight Batista. He unscrewed the canteen cap and gulped more water. Then he handed it to Sherry. That explains the guns in Jack's trunk. Last July, Barnes had some guy named Morris in Maryland order guns. Sonny's surplus in Townsend, Maryland. 
Manlicher Gacano, 7.35 surplus rifles, bolt action, a whole bunch of them. Now they had David Ferry fly the gun somewhere. I didn't catch it. New Orleans? Okay, Fer Ferry flew them to New Orleans. Patch, there's more to Ferry than meets the eye. The point of those guns was to alter the forepiece of each rifle. They dismantled them so they could be hidden and reassembled quickly. Sounds nefarious. I'll note that in my tape. Wait, they're moving out. On the Perende Road, right where we have the Impala. He looked up at her and ripped off the headphones. We have to get out of here right now. No argument here. He handed the amplifier and the other camera to her. Then he grabbed the 8mm. I need to rewind this film and put it in the canister. Check through the binoculars, Sherry. She kept the glasses to her eyes as he flipped a switch and wound the film back into the camera canister. Where are they? Rounding everyone up. Apparently they're going to march out. Oswell did tell Brengear in the clothing store that he trained men. I guess he was serious. Okay, they're marching on the road, Patch. Patch unscrewed the cover, lifted the yellow and black Kodak canister from the camera, then rescrewed the cover. Okay, let's go. He put the canister in his pocket and took her hand as they bent down. Hunched over, they moved into thicker brush. Memories of a battle and planes over a swampy area entered his thoughts. He envisioned men landing on a white sandy beach. The grassy ground moistened as they veered back toward the clump of trees where he had parked the impala. Although the woods now appeared quiescent, there was enough firepower within that small training group to kill him and Sherry quickly. He pulled her up the grassy incline toward the twisted trees at the break. As they neared the crest, he spotted the red impala a hundred yards down the road shoulder. They trotted deliberately on the gritty road toward the red Chevy convertible. He opened the trunk and threw in the equipment without securing it in the suitcase. He started the car and immediately left a dust trail behind as he continued down the road's gradual incline. I say we head straight. Doesn't that lead to Pontchartrain? He took the wrinkled map from her hands. It's an unpaved road along the lake. There's also a road leading away from the swamp where they're training. They were going the other way. I hope so. I sure hope so. The Riverfront Hotel, New Orleans, Louisiana, Thursday, September 5th, 1963, 10.30 p.m. Are you okay with dropping that film in the mailbox, she asked. Patch wrapped the towel around his waist inside the bathroom. Hemming, that was the name of the big guy back in the training camp. Who is he? Patch shook his head. Some kind of soldier of fortune, I don't remember. All on film, she said. The main thing is that movie film is mailed to Austin. The knock on the wooden door was swift and hard. Patch tightened the white towel around his waist and another around his neck. He fluffed his hair with the towel and approached the door. Yeah. The muffled voice sounded familiar. Lemon, it's Pilatus. It's urgent. Patch picked up the 38 off the bureau. Then he undid the chain and unlocked the door. Pilatus' hair hung in clumps and his clothes were dirt smudged. He slumped as he walked by Patch's gun. How did you find us? That's a dumb question. Furthermore, what does it matter? Well, he stuck out his neck at the last part of his question. What do you want? asked Patch. Pilatus rotated his chin around and smiled. Then he looked at Patch. You're lucky you're still alive. Sorry to disappoint you. Pilatus squinted and looked around. Let me tell you what I already know myself. 
You need to get away from all your contacts, especially Oswald. We heard Oswald twice on the radio, said Sherry. He's been on Channel 6, WDSU. They filmed him on the street three other times. I just spoke with him one-to-one. He doesn't get it. Says he's a Marxist, said Pat. Pilatus's face looked as flat as a cast-iron frying pan. The radio guy, Stucky, went up to the magazine street address to get Oswald to be on the air a second time. Oswald answered in his t-shirt and military fatigues. He's instructing the exiles, my friends. We saw him at Pontchartrain, said Patch. Oh, Christ, you two need to disappear. I may just leave the country. Exactly why, asked Patch as Sherry joined him. With a dumb grin, Pilatus shook his head. Then he sat on the flowery green chair and spread his arms over the chair arms. Oh, I don't think knowing everything is necessarily a good thing, Lemon. He leaped up and crossed the room. Then he peered around the drapes. We haven't heard anyone, Pilatus. Pilatus stepped from the drapes. You don't know that. As a matter of fact, you don't know what your actions have spawned. Patch, still wrapped in a towel, approached. Just tell us. Pilatus's brown eyes glassed over as if somebody had dunked him in the river. Your country... Be careful, Lemon. If you can get out of this, then be careful. They think they can supersede the Constitution, and they probably can. Nothing will mean anything after the end. The end of what? He walked toward the door. Just tell us something, said Sherry. The end of what? You know I'm baffled, confounded, as to who engineered your little spy program. Whoever it is has shielded himself perfectly. That's admirable. That's what it is. What do you know? asked Patch. They're looking for you, Lemon and Lime, because the word is out that you two might not be in their best interest. Once they get to you, they'll never let you go. They want answers. He opened the door and looked both ways down the hotel corridor. Then he ran from the room. Patch saw him take the stairs. He returned to the room and locked the door. He's right. We can't get out of this. And they will kill us if we try to get out, Patch. What we saw down that training camp was bizarre. Everyone is pretending to be someone else, especially Oswald. The government certainly wants to ask me questions, questions I don't have answers to. If Pilatus could find us, who's to say the others can't find us? Patch picked up the thirty-eight. So much for getting some sleep. The Lafayette Station Postal Annex, New Orleans, Louisiana, Friday, September 6, 1963, 9 a.m. Patch stepped up the stairs of the Lafayette Annex with a trepidation he rarely felt. Pilatus's warnings last night and the observations at the Pontchartrain training camp had him questioning how they could get out of the Oswald surveillance. Being on the run for the rest of their lives was not a pleasant prospect. He opened the doors and checked the post office boxes before he went inside. The lingering image of Lee Oswald staring at him had him tense. He opened the box and dragged out the next manila envelope. Then he pushed the box shut, turned the key, and quickly headed back to the park. As he emerged on the stone stairs, the morning breeze blew back his hair. Sherry stood at the bench next to the park shrubs and statue. He waited at the curb as a pickup truck and a Ford Falcon moved by at high speed. Then he crossed over into Lafayette Square. Once away from the street, he opened the manila envelope as he walked. 
Plane tickets to O'Hare Airport in Chicago under the name Sam Cronin and Darlene Schuster were inside. Texas Motor Vehicle licenses under those names were also included. What do you have, Patch? Phony driver's licenses and tickets to Chicago. He turned with her on the crushed stone path. They sat on the wood-slatted bench. Patch removed the usual typewritten yellow paper. Lemon, September 6, 1963. Fly to Chicago, 11.17 a.m. TWA. Chicago. Take a Greyhound from the airport to City Terminal on West Randolph. A 1959 Blue and White Oldsmobile station wagon will be at level 4 of the parking garage next to the theater. The car will have a gold water for president and a scenic sticker on it. The keys are under the passenger seat. We need extensive photos of Thomas Arthur Valley's apartment at Paulina and Wilson. Check for possible weapons. Valley was in the Marines with Lee Oswald in Japan. Works at the TTP Lithbat, located at 625 West Jackson Boulevard in Chicago. Also, need photos of Valley and his Ford Falcon. At 4 p.m., meet Richard Kane at 1045 North Reno. Urgent. Find out what Kane knows about Oswald and Valley. Patch then pulled out another $2,000. 20 $100 bills from the manila envelope. He looked up slowly. The obvious question is, why Chicago? The morning sun flickered through the tree branches. Sherry shook her head and they followed the path through the gardens toward the Impala. This money, if we make it out of this patch, and I do think we will, we'll be set for life, she nodded. I remember as a kid, being at the base in Japan, I think I was there, I was hit by a baseball. There was military equipment all around. I was just a kid. She held his arm. Patch, it's coming back to you. I think so. I got my nickname because I wore a patch after the accident. What's your full name? He shrugged his shoulders, but then he smiled. I'm not sure. She got inside the Impala and Patch slipped behind the steering wheel. The type note mentioned Ferenzo Benucci. Must be a friend of Rosselli. Any friend of Rosselli, Patch, is a friend of yours. Return to Dallas, Chapter 30. Greyhound Terminal, West Randolph Street, Chicago, Illinois. Friday, September 6th, 1963, 12.06 p.m. Patch carried the red suitcase through the Greyhound Terminal's open glass doors. He looked around the Chicago street as the warm air hit his face. Only a hundred yards away, silhouetted in the sun, the bright red letters of a park sign jutted near the Hotel Sherman's ground facade, casting a shadow onto West Randolph Street. They passed a cocktail lounge as the aromas of fresh food from a restaurant next to the parking garage migrated above the sidewalk. You want something to eat, Patch? Maybe we should just get that Oldsmobile first. They approached the garage's perforated white facade and black marquee. Morning special, $5. He kept his hand against her back as they climbed to the fourth level. In the first row on the outside wall, a sleek new Oldsmobile with dealer plates glistened in the light. They looked at each other and then crossed the concrete. Patch opened the passenger door and the smell of a new car filtered out. He reached under the seat and retrieved several keys. Sherry slid inside as he placed the suitcase in the trunk. 
She unfolded the map they had purchased at the airport. West Washington will bring us to Paulina and Wilson. Valley will be at work. We'll take the pictures of him in the car and then get out. What is this man doing with weapons? They want to know about weapons. He backed around and pulled the ticket from the visor. Then he pinched a $5 bill from his wallet. He turned and the tires produced a high-pitched sound on the concrete. I was just thinking about Pilatus last night, she said. Who do you think he really works for? Unknown. The funny thing is that no one can put it all together because everyone is hiding in their own little compartment. The car dipped near the exit booth. He paid the attendant and turned onto the city street. To his right, the Greyhound Terminal's large racing dog logo and huge bus letters were situated below the Hotel Sherman. We'll go to Valley's apartment and make sure he's not there. After that, we head to his work address. He checked his watch, and then the restaurant. Patch maneuvered the Oldsmobile into a curb space beyond the next block from Valley's tenement. He tucked the 38 in the side holster under his lightweight jacket and leaned in the window. She handed the Edict's camera to him. Stay right here, Sherry. Keep the doors locked. This should only take a few minutes. Please be careful, Patch. He squeezed her wrist. I'll be right back. Patch casually walked down the sidewalk. Chicago measured 2,000 miles from Oswald and all the nonsense that had taken place along the Gulf. He meticulously tracked the numbers on each tenement's worn wood fascia board until he reached number 35. Patch traipsed across the grass clumps and climbed the gray-slatted porch of a three-story wood building. Ruffled green curtains covered the door glass. He jiggled open the door and stepped into the cooler hall. Above an aluminum mailbox, tenant names were scrawled on adhesive tape in black ink. Valley's name, in shaky permanent ink, indicated an upstairs apartment. Patch checked the yard and then bolted up the stairs. Once on the landing, he knocked on the peeling painted door, rattling the tarnished brass numbers. Hello, Mr. Valley, hello. He gazed downstairs and knocked again. He twisted the steel doorknob from side to side. Can I help you, mister? Asked a bulldog lady in a washed out red and white sundress at the bottom of the stairs. Her dark eyes darted as she spoke. Patch turned quickly. I'm from the city. Mr. Valley was applying for benefits. What benefits? She barked and placed her shoe on the stairs. That's private, ma'am. You don't look like no city worker. She started up the stairs. Wouldn't be breaking into one of my rooms, would you, mister? What, are you crazy? Asked Patch. We need to know what's going on in there. You FBI? Patch pulled open his jacket, exposing his gun. Listen, Mrs. Gallo. I was breaking in. Well, at least you're honest. What did he do now? He and the guys he had over here. Oh, those crazy Cubans. They play their Spanish crap on the radio. And they carry lots of guns in there. Keep telling me they're going to burn the place down. We know that. That's my job, is to get pictures. All right, she said, pulling a chain with at least 20 keys on the ring from her dress pocket. I don't want it said that Viola Gallo let someone in one of her rooms. My mouth is zipped, Mrs. Gallo. Sure. She amazingly found the correct key and quickly opened the door to a cramped room with a green slip-covered couch, 
one lamp minus a shade, and a portable TV. A white refrigerator and a yellow Formica counter butted up against a round wood table. Patch took three pictures but saw nothing suspicious. Any names on those Cubans? Spanish names, who knows? There's a storage closet in the bedroom. Let's take a look. You got any identification? She demanded. In this neighborhood, I go incognito. Right. The neighborhood has gone to hell in a handbasket. She opened the bedroom door. The frayed yellow window shades glowed in the sunlight. Bedclothes were crumpled at the bottom of the mattress and the bedroom lamp also had no shade. Where's this closet? Right here, she said, opening a smaller white door. Patch popped his head inside and his stomach flooded at the cache of weapons. Thousands of rounds of ammunition and M1 military rifles. Four rifles had telescopic sights. What is it, she asked. Look for yourself, said Patch, snapping his fourth photo. I knew these bastards were up to no good. Four of them keep coming up here. Valley is insane. He's got some kind of mental problem. Mental problem and these guns? Great combination. Look, Mrs. Gallo, we're going to leave the guns here because we're going to raid this apartment while the Cubans are here. I ain't going to say nothing. Patch heard some bounding up the steps. Hey, man, who's in there? Asked a high-pitched voice with a Spanish accent. She pointed toward the closet and Patch ducked inside. Then he closed the door, but he could hear them outside. I heard a noise up here, but I guess I was wrong. Valley won't like you inside his place, lady. I thought I was being robbed, numbnuts. Now get out. Valley ain't here. When will he be back? Who the hell knows? Mrs. Gallo slammed the door. Patch cracked open the closet door and waited a few minutes as the voices faded. He crossed the room and stepped into the hall. This time he went down near the rear stairs and exited into a backyard with numerous clotheslines and trash barrels. He quickly vaulted the white fence into an alley. Then he sprinted down the cracked asphalt. He walked around the corner and onto the sidewalk, but he stopped when he did not see the Oldsmobile. Someone or something had prompted Sherry to move that car, or maybe she had been forced to leave. He ducked behind the brick building to his right. Less than a half a minute later, a blue Chevy approached. Two men sat in the front seat as the car paralleled the sidewalk. The gray-haired man in the passenger seat rested a sawed-off shotgun on the window frame. Patch gripped his handgun. The dark-haired man drove the car. Once the car passed, he stepped into the vacant lot. The red taillights glowed and the car went left at the stop sign. Patch! shouted Sherry from the fence across the lot. She waved her arms. Patch! Patch looked over his shoulder and then sprinted across the weeds. He quickly leaped the chain-link fence. Where did they come from? They didn't recognize the station wagon, but I knew I should get out of here. They moved down into a tenement driveway. Sherry had parked the Oldsmobile in the driveway. Patch ran forward and climbed in the driver's side. She threw the keys to him. One guy had a sawed-off shotgun. I saw it, said Patch as he started the car. Then he backed up. He looked both ways. We need to get over to Valley. All clear, she said. Why have they driven all the way up here and how did they know we were here? I don't know the answer to that, growled Patch. You don't carry a gun like that unless you're going to shoot it. What about Valley's apartment? The place is an ammo dump. Patch turned the car at 180 degrees. 
and he's got Cubans involved up here, just like down south. That's why they wanted us snooping around here. I have pictures of all of it. How did you get in there, Patch? Did you break the door down? Patch smiled and then flung back his head. The lady thought I was an FBI agent. Apparently the FBI's been around here too. Maybe the FBI's driving that car. Unbelievable. Robert Kincaid, FBI. She moved closer to him and held his arm. Is that your name? I do believe it is, he said, taking the turn. Valley works at the TTP Lutzblatt, 635 Jackson Boulevard. Let's meet this arms expert. Inside a red brick multi-story building near the Jackson exit to the Northwest Expressway, the noisy printing company, TTP Lithblatt, reeked of ink fumes and solvents in the warm air. He had told Sherry to remain in the hall and check for the Chevy. Pat stepped up to the counter. Excuse me, does Thomas Arthur Valley work here? The nimble guy with the leather apron stared at him and raised his index finger. He disappeared into the side room. Almost immediately, a stocky man in a beige sweater and black glasses stomped up to the counter. Can I help you, sir? Looking for Thomas Arthur Valley. Why? I think I just hit his car. He drives a Ford Falcon, right? How do I know what Valley drives? He looked Patch over. Stay right here. I'll get him, but watch it. He's a touchy bastard. The tension made him sweat, and he wiped his forehead. Removing his jacket meant exposing the 38. Sherry nodded from the open doorway across the hall. The stocky man trailed a pug-faced mean little man with a slightly receding hairline and a flat-top haircut. Did you hit my car? Cool it, Valley, said the stocky man. I can handle my own problems, Dave. Then he turned toward Patch as the shutter clicked in the hallway. Come on, let's go check it. And I'll tell you, if you wreck my car... Patch said nothing. Sherry disappeared when they passed through the open doorway. New York license plate? Yeah! They exited the building and Valley marched ahead of him into the parking lot. You from New York? That's none of your business! Then he stopped. Wait! How do you know it's my car? You left some kind of pamphlet with your name on it. He furrowed his brow deep enough to cut into his forehead. Then he shook his head. Ow! Oh. As the Charter Valley rumbled into the parking lot, Patch pivoted and rounded the building with Sherry trailing behind. Valley headed toward the white Ford Falcon. Sherry scribbled into her notebook. New York, 3110203. Let's go, said Patch. He ran down the sidewalk and backtracked along the building. She caught up to him when they entered the adjacent building and walked quickly down the hallway. New York, that is strange. Right, in Chicago. Did you get pictures? I shot 33 on the roll, hon. Good girl. They scurried down the stairs near a water fountain and exited onto a side street. Fifty feet ahead, the Oldsmobile was parked under a small oak tree. Patch unlocked the door and they got inside. He checked the mirror on the side streets. And this crazy man, Valley, is in cahoots with the Cubans? Figure that one out. He checked his watch and grabbed the map. Almost four. Where's the Adonis restaurant from here? She folded the map and turned it over. Take a right up here at the lights. Patch looked over his shoulder. I don't see Valley or the Chevy. Now we meet a Mr. Richard Kane, and then get the hell out of here, hopefully.
Richard Kane, another one of those interwalking compartments. Plausible deniability. The complete audiobook of Return to Dallas is available at audible.com.